0: Welcome. On, on uh, Sundays like today, I think of the old Marines commercial, or I'd say the few, the proud, the Marines. So if you're here, I just want you to know I think that you're, you might as well have been able to be been a Marine. I um, talked to someone on their way in that hates Valentine's Day, and I'm not a huge Hallmark holiday kind of person either. So those of you that have that sentiments, so I'm with you. And those of you who like to remember to love on this special day. I'm with you too. I appreciate I got a Valentine's this morning already from a young saint in this church. Thank you very much. Um, One of the more memorable Valentine's days for me goes back to my first year of marriage. And it actually started the night before, which I think was a Friday. Uh, It was like Friday, February 13th. And I was uh, peeling potatoes and slicing them in half. And my young, beautiful bride was uh, on the phone actually talking, I think, with my sister. And in the middle of the peeling and slicing potatoes, there was this moment where I sliced through the potato and then into my thumb. And there, there's like kind of blood gushing everywhere. And my wife's on the phone with my sister. Uh, Sorry, I need I need to go. Matt just cut himself. And it got kind of woozy, and I had to sit down, and we got to go to the Mary Greeley emergency room, the hospital in Ames, and uh, got pain meds and stitches, got sent home. And then the next day was Valentine's Day. And I had planned things that day, but due to the pain meds, I was kind of out of it all day long. And by like mid-afternoon, late afternoon, Carrie was like, did you want to do stuff? Did not you say you had stuff? I was like, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to take you. There's something special at Raymond Gardens, this be- these beautiful gardens over by uh the football stadium. And we got there and it was like already it was already closed. Because I had forgotten the time. And I was like, she's like, Did you want to go to a restaurant? I was like, yeah. And she's like, where are we gonna go? I was like, I can't remember. Um and I think what we ended up doing was we got I think we watched like a really bad incredible Hulk movie by the end of the night. It was it was what we did and uh, you know, bottom line, marriage, marriage can be a little messy. And uh, it doesn't always go as well. You're, 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 you have hopes for intimacy that get crushed. You struggle with areas of you know, sexual purity or sexuality. It's just really messy. And where we are in the song of songs, a lot of what we've seen so far have been the idealistic side of what God's design is for intimacy. But there's going to be a, there's a break now where we see some realism hit. And the realism is that marriage and intimacy, sexuality can get kind of messy. And it's not always funny. It's all, often kind of really hard and rips out our souls and very challenging. And so I'm gonna, I've am i asked one of my brave and beautiful sisters to share a little bit of uh, her journey when, when relationships got messy. So I'm going to let Rebecca Rouse share, and then I'll come back, and we'll open up Song of Songs. Oh, you're going to use the wireless. All right.
1: Good morning. Um, Titled this, uh, A Place I Never Thought I Would Be. Uh, Thirty-two years ago, last week, I, I stood up with a man and made marriage vows. Four years ago this last week, we decided, we went away for a retreat and decided to dissolve those vows. I can only speak for myself, not for Jeff, or not for other marriages. But in retrospect, we were pretty arrogant, deciding to end the marriage the way we did and for thinking it would not affect others. But a relationship does not reach this point overnight. I think we had not been listening to each other and not communicating with each other for decades. I know that I did not feel cherished or emotionally safe enough to share my most inner feelings we were focused more on our own pain and loneliness and not trusting God to sustain us. So, even when I was praying for our relationship and wanting Him to change, I was not really entrusting myself to God. But talking of ending the relationship felt like seeing a light at the end of a long dark tunnel. After 28 years of marriage, you can't finish it without feeling loss and guilt and grieving. He, my ex, um, said we would both be able to live comfortably after separating, and making the decision to separate led to decisions to close my yarn shop, look for a new job, a job which he said I should be able to find easily. In fact, I waited for one and a half years while I filled out numerous applications and had many interviews without any job offers. I struggled with feelings of incompetence, rejection, and worthlessness. We had very different ideas of what was appropriate as a support, and this led me to at least one panic attack as I looked at a scary, bleak future. But during this time, I had many good friends, friends who supported me, some who took my side and encouraged me to move on, and friends who also challenged our decision to separate even as they continued to love us. I had friends who listened and prayed with me, who listened and prayed with me, who listened and dot, dot, dot. Sometimes it was really painful feeling misunderstood and alone. A divorce care class I participated in through another church helped me come to terms with my new world but all these friends still left a hole. When I turned to God in prayer and sought his will after we separated, he comforted me and sustained me as never before. We were studying a book on prayer in Sunday school, and I learned so much from this book and from my brothers' and sisters' experiences as well. As I continued to seek God and to bring him my sloppy, messy life, my Abba father drew me closer, and I saw and felt him comforting me as I continued to wait for a job, a divorce settlement. It's kind of like treading water. Also, as I discovered I would be a grandmother before becoming a mother-in-law and then seeing my son's relationship dissolve, even though we still have a precious grandson in our life. God hasn't taken away the trials or the pain, but he has held me as I struggled through them and as I still struggle through them. It's too easy to try and force a change or a result, but I am learning to wait on God. I found a job in the last place I thought I would find full-time employment. We finally came to a settlement, and God has provided generously for me and has protected me emotionally as well. And I am continuing to learn to be content with God alone. Thanks.
0: Thanks for sharing, Rebecca. Love you. Yeah. Let me pray for us and her. Father, um, not knowing where people are today, uh, whether single, married, uh, struggling in singleness, struggling in marriage, I pray, God, that you would provide hope Um, encouragement, uh, the presence of the living God and Lord Jesus' presence of brothers and sisters in Christ who could walk with us. Would you you in your kindness sustain us? Help us to trust your promises, to live according to your word, and to experience your grace uh, when everything blows up. We need your help. We need your healing. Uh, So come, Lord Jesus, speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So by way of reminder, uh Song of Songs is a series of interconnected poems about relationships, intimacy, sexuality, marriage. Uh, because it's a song or a poem, it's safe to say we're we're not dealing with uh historical persons, except what we're what we what we're seeing is a master storyteller use poetry to capture the heart, life, and kind of daily living of every type of person. To me, this is fiction at its best. Um, There's actually a famous uh, fiction writer today, a British man named Neil Gaiman. And uh, here's a quote from Neil Gaiman on fiction. He says, fiction is the lie that tells the truth after all. Fiction is the lie that tells the truth after all. Some of you out there are like fiction haters. To you, I'm going to pray the Lord changes your heart. Because I believe that there's more truth in many fiction books than you'll ever find in many non-fiction books. God takes compelling stories, insightful poetry, to teach us true things. And one of the truths we're going to see today is that marriage and intimacy are messy, complicated, some days painful. Let's jump into this text. I want to start in chapter five, verse two. We have the woman in this story speaking, and she says, "She says I slept, but my heart was awake." Which is, you know, just so, you know, scholars kind of wonder: is she is she recalling a dream sequence? Is this a daydream? Is this? But either way, in poetry, she's saying, "I slept, but my heart was awake." Listen, my beloved is knocking. He says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And she replies, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? So again, we have this midnight scene. Uh, this man is showing up, knocking on a locked door wanting to come in presumably for some intimacy and it appears in verse three that this woman uh is she's done for the night you know um that's where she's at i've I've taken off my robe must i put it on again i've washed my feet must i soil them again one scholar uh says this is the this is be akin to the 21st woman saying sorry honey i have a headache i'm sorry dear it's too late But verse 4, look what happens. She says, my beloved, he thrust his hand through the latch opening, and my heart began to pound for him. So something about this man's passionate, relentless gesture changes her heart. She's excited. There was this lackluster first response, but now she has this reciprocal desire to open the door. And she goes, and she opens the door. Verse 5, I arose to open... For my beloved, my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Verse 6 I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. I had opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. And then she says, My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him but did not find him. I called for him but he did not answer. So the, the the this poem begins with this longing husband and this disinterested wife. And then it flips, right? And we have this we have this disappeared husband and this disappointed wife. And it says her heart is stinking. She's <laughs> You know, and this is again. This is this author has put together this this story of just the poetic nature of intimate, or the the roller coaster nature of intimacy, the highs and the lows, the longing, but then the 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 heartache. Some days there's joy and passion, but other days the door feels locked, or your spouse seems gone. And those of you who've gone through tough marriages, it's even harder when you're. Husband or wife is present but seems gone. The lock breathe you know, uh, the lock could be miscommunication, loneliness, and unmet longing. But then the situation goes from bad, bad to worse in verse 7. Right? So in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, she's calling for her husband but not answering, and then it says. Verse 7, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. So the idea is somehow the woman now, again, this is poet poetry, she's gone out looking for her man. She wants to be close to her man, but there's these watchmen. And they find her as they make their rounds in the city, and they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Now, this is unlikely a literal, physical beating by watchmen. And so I agree with the scholars who say this is like guilt or shame, like it's already bad, but now there's all this deep despair and frustration and you know, and if, you know and again, we could flip this like um, this text, if you read it, it, it sounds like the woman's in the wrong and the man's in the right. This could flip, but there's just I mean <laughs> beating, she feels defenseless, she feels lost, she feels abused, there's distance that has separated her from her husband, and then the, the pain and the sorrow and the guilt, it's just gotten worse. And then in the midst of her despair, we hear verse 8. In the midst of her despair, she says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him, I am faint with love. At the midst of her despair, she calls out to the community, to the daughters, help me find my man. If you see him, would you tell him I want him again? Would you tell him where my heart is? All kinds of things can happen in marriage that makes you just get to that place where you're saying, I need help. This gotten to a really bad spot. I mean, intimacy is about delicate touch and positive compliments. It's about keeping secrets. But when those things fail, someone is going to feel locked out. A harsh word rings like a locked bolt. An insult, a slammed door, miscommunication staffs energy, smartphone distraction stifles joy, being ignored is a stab in the back. This is marriage. This is realistic day-to-day experiences for people in relationships, whether they're dating, whether they're married. Now, here's my question, though. Have you ever been on like the receiving end of a cry like this? Maybe it's a friend or a family member. They turn to you and they say something to the effect of, like, my marriage is a mess. Or my husband's a jerk. My wife keeps pushing me away. I don't trust my girlfriend anymore. I think my boyfriend is too pushy. Or maybe it's more of just the mess of sexuality. So someone says, I'm questioning my sexuality. What do you think is right? The friends speak in verse 9. Verse 9, they say, How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? Now, there's a few people who read this and think that maybe, like, these friends are being sarcastic or disdainful. Like, what's so special about your man? But if you read the rest of the psalm, or the rest of these poems, I think consistently the community is always helpful. And the community is always celebrating beautiful love and what intimacy is supposed to be like. So I see this as friends effectively sitting there down and saying something like, wow, your relationship is in a critical spot. You're hurt. You're looking for answers. You want him, but he seems absent right now. And then they're basically saying, just remember, girlfriend, why you loved him in the first place and why you should still love him now. You've charged us us before about guarding intimacy and waiting for its fruition in marriage, so now it's your turn. We charge you to remember your vows. Remember, your man is worth it, or your kids are worth it, or this is, well, honor God, this is right, this is good. Just a question a little bit about friendship. Do you have friends like that? That would come in and speak truth to you? I reached out to a friend of mine used to come to this church and was asking him a little bit about his journey when uh, his relationship got pretty messy. And uh, one of the things I appreciate about this person is he stayed engaged in relationships, continued to be encouraged. And uh, one of the things that he wrote in the midst of his relationship at his worst, he wrote, the mere presence of believers in my life was an anchor for me. People to speak truth Keel told him to hold on, keep loving, not take the low road. Do you have friends like that? Or do you have the type of people who are gonna, gonna like jump in and say, She can't treat you like that, bro? You don't have to stick around for his cold shoulder. If you feel that way, that's what you should do. Trust your feelings. Or you have needs that need to be met, and if you don't have someone meeting those needs, you should go looking for someone else. If she doesn't shape up, you know some other girl will respect you. Like, what are the friends in your life? Do they love you? Do they love God? Do they love truth? Do they love marriage? What kind of community and friends speak into your relationships, your marriage, your life? Likewise, what kind of friend are you? Like, what would you say? How would you direct? Do you let your buddy vent, but never push him to love and cherish his wife? Do you let your girlfriend vent without ever uh, encouraging her to love and respect her husband? What kind of friend? Friends play such a critical role. You need them. You need to be a good one. Um, interesting. Back in 2018, Nancy Piercy, she wrote this book. It's called Love Thy Body. I think just slide this. Uh i I I just throw it. If you personally have some sexual identity struggles or have someone close to you does, I can't recommend this book enough. This book will help you be a good friend. This book will help you point people to Jesus. In, in one of the chapters, Percy uh, recalls a chilling incident. She writes this, quote, A 75-year-old woman had just heard a compelling lecture by Rosaria Butterfield, a former lesbian who converted to Christianity. Afterwards, she approached the speaker and recounted that she'd been married to another woman for 50 years and that she and her partner had children and grandchildren. In a voice broke with pain, she whispered, I have heard the gospel, and I understand that I may lose everything why didn't anyone tell me this before? Why did people I love not tell me that I would one day have to choose like this? And then Percy adds, where were the Christians who should have been reaching out to her with a balanced message of love and truth? That's what we need for our marriages. That's what we need for our young people. That's what you need for your friendship. With someone who will speak a balanced message of love and truth, they're one of the recurring uh, uh, metaphors throughout Scripture is about paths, like this is the ancient paths, walk in them. Uh, Jesus talks about wide is the road or wide is the path that leads to destruction. And many people find that. It's the easy road, it's the welcome road. But narrow is the road and hard is the path. And those who take that path, they find life. It's the life of loving God, it's the life of loving others, it's the life of obedience. Good friends friends say, stay on the narrow path. And the narrow path is never popular. You know, I'm so thankful that before marriage and after marriage, Carrie and I have had friends who have said the hard things to us. I remember being vetted by her youth pastor before, I don't know if it was before we started dating or right after we started dating. She had some men in her life that were going to make sure that Matt Proctor wasn't too crazy. There's still men in my life that ask me questions about my heart toward my wife. And is it guarded or is it being lured away toward others because I'm not protecting it? In verse 9, these friends, they ask just a couple of questions. And if you look in this text, this is the turning point. This is the turning point for this broken marriage that seems to be the distance is getting worse. And these friends come in and now it starts, the fissure starts lessening. Hope is returning. They ask this question like about her man. And then she responds, well, let me tell you about my man. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold, his hair is wavy, and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold. Wouldn't you like that compliment, men? His arms are like rods of gold. Take us to the gun show, baby. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. I mean, so he's she's describing this man publicly. For those who are listening, like I see him as strong. I see him as capable. Um, they speak of images of integrity and honor. When you come to verse 16, where it talks about his lips being sweetness itself, it's probably to, it's not talking about kissing here. It's, it's talking about. I love talking with him. I love the conversation that we share. And then I love that she calls him beloved and friend. This is my beloved. This is my friend. You know this Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for friend shows up 7 times in the Song of Songs. It's often in the feminine form which the NIV often translates it darling. But the word is friend. It's companion. I become more convinced In my life, that the best relationships are built on friendship. A good marriage is one sustained conversation with a few brief interruptions along the way. And that's what she's she's missing. That she's missing her friend. Yeah, he's strong. Yeah, he looks good. I I miss talking with him. I miss my friend. Miss my companion. I respect my husband, my companion, my friend. I want to be with him. He's worth it. The friends ask the question. The woman responds. And then look how the friends respond again. They've heard her affirm, like, I'm going to press on. I'm going to fight for my marriage. And they say, where is your beloved gone, most beautiful woman? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? It's almost like the friends are clapping. They're giving her a standing ovation. They're saying, you got this girl. Let's go find your man, right? I also think it's this picture, too, of we're going to do whatever it takes to help you. We'll stay up and pray with you. We'll help you work through this conflict. We'll help you mediate. We'll watch your kid. We'll give you some money to go on a date We'll do whatever it takes so you can find and rekindle that love again. Uh, I'm aware of multiple times in the history of this church of people doing that. Paying for someone to go to a marriage conference. Paying for someone to get away for a few days. I love that. Like, that's the church at its best. Not just saying, well, I'll pray for your marriage. Suck it up, buttercup, right? No, I'm with you. I want to help you succeed. And the friends are all about this, Right? Let me just also say that some of you don't have friends like this. Um, One of Satan's lies, I really believe, would be like, well, I don't have friends like this, so I'm on my own. Or if I would have friends like this, maybe I'd take a better course, but no one in this church has cared about me. Or there's still a, a, a sustaining God who will walk with you. There's still a call to do what's right, even if you don't feel like you got the greatest teammates right now. Know also that um, me and the other elders and our wives, we are happy to listen and pray. We will pull out our checkbooks to make sure you've got money to get away. Uh, this church will support you with marriage counseling. This church will support you with all, you know. So don't listen to the enemy think the enemy is saying, saying you're alone. There aren't people willing to invest time, money, resources. There's a lot of women and men in this church that will watch your kids. But still at the end of the day, each of us have to decide to love and honor God. We have to decide to love and honor the person God has put in our lives. Another quote from Nancy Piercy that I think captures this idea so well, she writes this, Our feelings do not define us, but our moral commitments do. Our feelings do not define us, but our moral commitments do. This is true at every level of marriage and intimacy and sexuality. You might feel like you don't love him or her anymore, but a moral commitment to your vows says press on. God will sustain you. You might not feel uh, heterosexual, or you might not feel normal, or feel. but God's word is spoken to these areas of walking in obedience, Trusting his design. So as a kid, we had a book called The Emperor's New Clothes. In fact, that was the cover of the version that we had. This is a Hans Christian Andersen tale. Uh, Those of you who might not be familiar with this story, uh, a prideful emperor is deceived by two pretend clothes makers. story reads, this is how it goes. It says, one day, two rogues calling themselves weavers made their appearance. They gave out what they knew, how to weave stuffs of the most beautiful colors and elaborate patterns, the clothes manufactured from which should have the wonderful property of remaining invisible to everyone who was unfit for the office he held and who was extraordinarily simple in character, magic clothes. And only the worthy and the noble will see these beautiful patterns so eventually the emperor is shown the so-called new outfit and the emperor declares kind of in himself, right? How is this? said the emperor to himself. I can't see nothing. I can see nothing. This is indeed a terrible affair. Am I a simpleton? Or am I unfit to be an emperor? That would be the worst thing that could happen. Oh, the cloth is charming, he said out loud. It has my complete approbation. Those of you know, it's not till he goes out in public where Uh, A wise child says, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. By the way, I fear today that we have uh, many people falling in line with this story. We're told that sexual freedom is the greatest thing for the great people. You can be whatever gender you want, express any sexual preference you, you want, walk in and out of any sexual relationship or marriage that you want. And this is all against even modern studies putting the Bible aside that says to believe this leads to greater amount of mental illness, suicidal behavior, infidelity, domestic abuse, and physical illness. The emperor is not wearing any clothes. Not true. Add to the fact that there are serious spiritual consequences when we turn away from God's design for marriage, sexuality, intimacy. So hear me today as a friend. All of these things are messy. All of these things are, uh, you know, they, 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 they play with our souls on a regular basis. But God's good, and God is forgiving, and God is disdaining. God's design is best. And so I'd invite you that wherever you are in your marriage, single, um, sexuality, relationship status, like, trust the Lord, for his path is good. I want to be a friend today, saying, "Walk in this path." I want to send you out, hopefully today, as friends that tell others, "Walk in this path." Look at it again the woman, uh, the the men, the women, the, the the friends ask in verse one, "Where's your man?" We'll help him find you, and she says, "My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to the, to browse in the gardens, to gather lilies." I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. So, we don't know all that transpired, but this is poetry. They don't care. Things are okay again. Garden is open. Love is reestablished. And just in case you have any doubt, the man is on board too. That's verse 4, where he's saying, You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops. With banners, verse five. Turn your eyes from me; they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Interesting in um, it was in five sixteen, chapter five verse sixteen. The woman calls her husband her friend, and then in verse four that word darling, he's saying, "You're my friend. You're my darling." She loves her intimate companion. He loves his intimate companion. And then I'll let you read yourself chapters 6 and 7 this week. They just start keeping praise upon praise, expressing desire upon desire. We go from a marital mess to a marital reunion. What was lost has now been found. Where death threatens, now life returns. Marriage is messy. But there's hope. Did you know that there's a a secular study um, that people who... uh, Said that they're like on a scale of like one to five, and they're saying their marriage was like a one or two. They were discouraged, it was broken, I'm unhappy. Five years later, the couples that stayed together, 80% of those people went from being, my marriage is unhappy, to my marriage is happy, just by staying together, just by not giving up. There's hope, and it's confirmed, right? I I, I actually, as a Christian, affirm this statement that's thrown out every now and again. I do believe science is science. I think you could trust some of this research. God's design is good. It's proven, or and or. Let me just give one warning and two recommendations as we go. One warning, two recommendations. First warning, if you haven't picked up on it already. Don't expect love and marriage to go perfectly. Don't expect love and marriage to go perfectly. So romantic love is what the Greeks called eros where we get the word erotic. And eros is a wonderful thing. When we experience eros we feel like we're flying. I, mean, I remember riding my bike home in college after spending several hours with this new girl that we were supposedly studying for an upcoming exam. Like I was flying. I couldn't I didn't need to sleep. I didn't need to eat. Right? Eros is great. C.S. Lewis wrote this about eros. He says, of all the loves, of all the sorts of loves, he, he, that is eros, is at its height the most godlike and therefore most prone to demand our worship. So what happens is for many, dating, engagement, and early marriage, it's this rush of joy, emotion, and pleasure, and it becomes tempting to believe that these feelings will last and must last forever forever. But guess what? Eros cannot last forever. Eros shouldn't last forever. We wouldn't do anything else. We would get nothing done if Eros lasted forever. You can't stare into the eyes of another human being for that long. And so what happens, though, is when Eros starts crashing down and you experience normal life, or maybe something even worse than normal life, it ends up opening all of these dangerous doors. We're saying, I want that Eros again. I want that feeling. Right? I want I want that new romantic partner. I want those, those early tingles again. When you think you've fallen out of love, then you start looking for love, often in all the wrong places. And here's one of the things about Eros. Why C.S. Lewis warns that it can demand our worship. When we feel Eros... We justify all sorts of behavior. And we say the line, love made me do it. Love makes this right. I feel it so much. How could it not be true? And that is a dangerous temptation. Because even though Eros is godlike, it is not God. It cannot sustain us. It cannot direct us. It cannot give us barriers and boundaries. The New Testament tells us what can govern love. 1 John John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. And it's the word agape. This is what love is. This is what real love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is love. Love is self-giving. Love is sacrifice. Love is a cross, a perfect son of God dying for undeserving people, giving everything he has. This is love. Everything else is last than. I know a man loves his wife when he cares for her when she has the flu. I know a, a girlfriend loves her man when she lets her man go and do his job and doesn't bother him, Right? You can't leave me. Like there's we love is greater than that that feeling. Romance and intimacy are messy in a in romantic eros love doesn't have the power to get us through. So for your intimacies, for your desires to be ordered, we need to first know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us who laid down his life for us. For me, I need that love. I need that forgiveness. And then in knowing Jesus, then I can start loving Likewise, people, sometimes people ask me, Matt, when is it, how old do I need to, be start, to start dating? And I'm talking to men mostly. I say, when you can lay down your life like Jesus laid down his life for the church, that's when you're ready. When you're doing that, when I see in your life that you are laying down your life for other people, then maybe you can date. Until then, eh. That's, that's gonna be the vetting process while I'm cleaning my gun, right? You wanna date my daughter. Can you give me some examples on how you loved your, your mother this week as Christ loved the church? Oh, you don't have any? Well, you can leave now. Tips, buddy. Um, that's the warning. Marriage is messy. It's not perfect. You gotta, have, you gotta know the love of Christ Jesus. So now two final recommendations. I'll be quick on these. One, sing the praises of your spouse to them and to the world. And that's just from the text. This marriage begins this turn when the, the friends say, tell us about your man, and she starts praising him. And then the reunion happens when he starts praising her. Sing the praises of your spouse to the world. If you're dating, you already do that naturally, it's easy for you, but you, I'll give it, you can be your application too. But for those married, sing, your praises, sing the praises early and often. I love hearing people speak well of their spouse when they're absent. I get very nervous when people slander their spouse when they're they're absent. That's usually for me like a big bell goes out. Pray a lot. We'll have a future conversation later. But praise. And as Christians, there are going to be some days where you don't feel like your spouse is worthy to be praised. And you might even say, well, I'll be nice to him when he starts to be nice to me. This is love. Not that we love God, but God loved us and he sent his son so love and praise and those, you can gift your spouse with a compliment when they don't deserve it. And when she asks, how does she look? The answer is always great, always great. Marriage is messy, sting one another's praises. And then here's a one at the end and we may come back to this one. Keep the intimacy door open. This whole mess started with a locked door. When we steal ourselves off from our spouse, things can get messy. This means keeping the door open for intimate communication. This means keep the door open for intimate touching. A locked door, emotionally, physically, is, is, is a danger. So in fact, the New Testament picks up on this, 1 Corinthians 7. The apostle Paul writes, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. By the way, in neither of these verses can you demand anything. Make sure you hear, this is a yielding, willingly yielding, never taking, is what the text says. Verse 5, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If we lock one another out, Satan will find a way in. And so we need to stay united. God has given you your spouse to you to pursue holiness, faith, and love. I'm going to close with some final words from this gent who learned a lot about Uh, walking with God in the midst of a marital crisis. He writes this. This is closing. Another angle is the human heart. The human heart is more disturbing than we realize. We can be convinced that we need X or that anyone who would correct us is misguided. We are totally convinced in our own eyes what reality is, totally tuning out what is true. None of us is above this. We need to be humbly aware of the power of the sinful passions within us and the deceitful ways we hide it. Also, it's not just us, but there are spiritual forces, demons, Satan, and they are at work. We need to give ourselves to Christ's body and let others give themselves to us to continue walking in the truth with Jesus. He says, I've seen several marriages fall apart, both from my upbringing and at Cornerstone. Some couples or individuals lean in and receive support where others resist and run away from it. It's so nuanced and complicated why people respond the way they do. I don't have a simple answer. I just know for myself I needed the grace and support from those at Cornerstone, and I'm so grateful for it. Let me pray. Father, I appreciate the the friends in this room who have prayed for my marriage, who have supported me. Um, I'm thankful for the people who have been open and honest when uh, their, their lives, their own struggles uh, sexually, their own struggles relationally, appreciate just the, the bravery of people to bring that into the light and say, I need help, I need a friend, I need counsel. Lord, I pray that in the coming months, maybe even the coming days, God, that we would just have a more authentic community talking about the messiness of marriage and relationship, but also the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus to walk in love and faith and obedience, even when it's hard. We thank you that this is possible, not because we first loved God, but God loved us and sent Jesus Christ to us as a sacrifice for our sin. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. Then.